Navigating the Datascape with Chris Presley and special guests. Welcome to episode 15 of the Datascape podcast. I'm your host, Chris Presley. We're coming back after a brief break, and I really appreciate you sticking with us. There's a lot of hype in the media these days about machine learning, data science, and artificial intelligence. Today, we're going to discuss the differences between the terms, but really concentrate on what is machine learning at the 101 level, and we want to talk about how it applies to you in the enterprise. As always, we'll also include some handy tips on how you can get started and how you can uh, learn more about it. And to help us navigate this part of the datascape, I've invited my esteemed colleague, Sp- Paul Spiegelhalter, to join us today. Hey, Paul, how's it going? Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me on. Great. Thanks for joining us. Let's get started and jump right into a quick overview of your career. Sure. I started off like a lot of data scientists in academia. My, my PhD is in uh, analytic number theory and pure mathematics. And then I, after that, I switched over to uh, machine learning and data science after a, a brief love affair with deep learning and neural networks, which turned into a much, a much longer love affair and is still what I'm doing now. So after doing a, a number of different consulting projects and mini projects for a variety of different companies, I ended up at, at Pythian, where I continue to do um, lots of machine learning, lots of data science, and, and certainly no small amount of, of deep learning as well. So I'd like to start right at the beginning to talk about, to, to identify what we're talking about, what we're not talking about. So why don't you go ahead and define machine learning for the audience? Machine learning is really a, a way of having computers recognize patterns in things, uh, patterns in data. Traditional pattern recognition involves us as programmers or users hand coding a pattern that a computer should look for. The, what makes machine learning different is that the algorithms adaptively learn what patterns they should look for themselves, and they develop their own sense of which patterns are important for, for particular purposes. Okay. What is AI then? Well, two different forms of AI. There's strong AI, which is what you see in movies where you have a machine that is sentient. And that is not anything that exists now as far as I know. The other form of AI is what's called weak AI, which is really just sophisticated pattern recognition. And that is essentially synonymous with machine learning. The thing that lets Alexa recognize your voice. It's the thing that lets Uber drivers know which car is closest to you and so on. And so then also uh, very related to this is what is data science? Data science is a larger practice, which is really the intersection of, of machine learning and domain knowledge and problem solving. It's uh, a larger practice that at its core does have machine learning in it, but is uh, sort of a broader problem solving tool set that can be applied in a number of different situations. So then today we'll t- we'll try to stick to machine learning, although I would love to have you come back and talk about AI, its effects on society, what it is, what it isn't, as well as, you know, some data scientist basics. But uh, unfortunately, with our time constraints, let's, let's stick to ML today. So you talked about machine learning be- being basically pattern recognition, but it uh, but the machine doing some correction and some recognition there. So how does machine learning work? Without talking about a lot of mathematics, uh, because essentially there's a lot of that underneath the hood, really one of the basic ways that it works is uh, you feed one of these algorithms information and you tell it what the 
the answers are to a particular problem. And this can take the form, for example, of thousands or tens of thousands or millions of essentially flashcards that you show one of these things. And you say, this flashcard represents a, a, an X. This flashcard represents a Y. This is a picture of a, a puppy. This is a picture of an airplane. This is a, a batch of log information that represents an intrusion attempt. This is a batch of information that represents a non-intrusion attempt. And over the course of, of seeing all of these flashcards, it ad adaptively learns, sort of like we do when we once we see flashcards, we don't just memorize which flashcard is attached to which answer. We start to recognize the patterns that are inherent in those inputs so that we can extrapolate and use that to, to come to conclusions about information that we've never actually seen before. And machine learning algorithms do the same thing. Okay. So... When when we're showing, so I, I understand how we could show, uh, you know, the patterns of what is and, and and even what is not. But how how does the machine know that it's wrong? Does it ask a human? Is there someone supervising this, or you know? Well, there's there's how, actually two that? different, broadly two different forms of machine learning. One is called supervised machine learning, and another one's called unsupervised machine learning. The one where it has to know what the answer is, is falls under the supervised category. And in that case, every single input that you give this thing, every flashcard that you give it automatically comes with an answer. So what it does is it looks at the input, it tries to guess what it sees in there, and it compares that guess against the known answer that it's been given. And based off of whether those the guess and the correct answer are, are the same or not, it, adapt, it uh, changes all of the parameters that are inside of it and uses that to make a better guess next time. So it's like a, a guess and check using an input and a known answer. I got it. And so who, if we're, you know, when, when we're using machine learning and we're training, I think that's called training the model. Is that right? Yes. So the, the process of showing it these, these flashcards and the answers that are attached to those flashcards is called training a model. And then to verify that the, that, that the model has actually learned something useful, once that process is done, we typically show it a new batch of information that it's never seen before, but is, is similar, and see how it performs without showing it the true answers, just to make sure that it can, in fact, extrapolate and, and, and learn from what it's seen and not just memorize. Got it. And when we show patterns, I'm assuming we don't show here's three pictures of a dog. It's here's three million pictures of a dog. Or something. Yes. Is yeah. That right? So, so uh, I mean, we as humans tend to look at flashcards one at a time. These things can look at, yes, absolutely, thousands at the same time. Yeah. So, is giving the answers with the uh, flashcard is that a labor-intensive uh, activity? Uh, normally, they feed in pretty easily. Giving them the data is is pretty straightforward. Depending on what you're trying to do, developing or creating the data in the first place might be a little bit labor-intensive. I mean, you have to have the, the data available in some form. And in the case of supervised learning, you do need to have labels that are attached to it. So that that might involve some some curation of data or, or trying to develop a data set. And since these things learn by repetition at sort of a large scale, having five examples of something that you want a machine learning model to learn is not really good enough. 5,000 is better, depending on the situation. Typically, you want a really, really a lot uh, Thousands, tens of thousands, um, in some cases millions. So although we've kind of gotten into the steps, could you give an overview of the steps one takes for a, a machine learning project? Sure. So typically you have some, some problem that you want to solve where 
whether it's whether it's in the case of image recognition, you say I want I want a model to be able to identify the thing that is in this picture, or I want a model to be able to identify intrusion attempts uh, given a bunch of of log files or something of that nature. Uh, second, you try to develop a data set that is uh, relevant to the task that you're trying to accomplish, meaning you have to have pictures with the labels of the things that are in it, or log files with maybe some labels for, for intrusion attempts. You then make some sort of a choice as to which machine learning algorithm you'd like to use to try to predict that. And there's a, a number of things that go into that design, uh, design choice. From there, you go through a training process where you take all the information and show it to the model along with the known answers, and it changes all of its internal parameters to try to adapt to the information they show it. And then once that's gone on for a sufficient amount of time, you pause and you show it uh, some information that it's never seen before, just to verify that it's not just learning the uh, memorizing the flashcards that you've shown it, but actually learning new information. And then from there, you can kind of put it into use in whatever way is appropriate for that task. And is that something that it sounds like that's a one person, maybe two at the most job, like a data science scientist who's working for the, the company. Is that right? It depends on the project and the scale of the project. If you want to do something like recognize images inside of or recognize objects inside of an image, there's a lot of there are a lot of models that have been pre-trained for that purpose. There's a lot of architecture that's publicly available. There's a lot of information uh, and training data that's publicly available. So it would be very easy for one person to assemble a solution for that. However, if you're trying to do something that's never been done before, or if the, the data involved requires a lot of cleaning or careful analysis, or if the machine learning algorithm is completely new or being architected from scratch, then it might require significantly more than one person. Also, depending on what the problem is too, what the challenges that you're trying to accomplish if the acceptable margin for error is very, very small, then you probably want a team of people changing all the parameters and really, really fine-tuning the model to make it absolutely perfect. Trying to build a model that recognizes cats and pictures, the, the price of failure is not particularly high. But if you were to build a, some sort of a model that could perform open-heart surgery, you probably want it to be pretty good. Whenever I hear about machine learning or read about it, it, it seems to be attached to a cloud platform. Do I have to do machine learning in the cloud or is it something I can do on-prem? You can do machine learning. Uh, I, I mean, I I've, I've do machine learning on a laptop all the time. The main advantage of a cloud platform and one of the reasons why you absolutely should look into it is that scaling things up is significantly easier. As we mentioned, you have this fairly memory intensive machine learning brain and you're showing it thousands or millions of flashcards as fast as possible so that it can learn in a timely manner that absolutely benefits from using cloud architecture. Okay. And do you have a, a favorite uh, cloud platform that you use? I was using AWS for a long time. I've recently switched over to, to Google Cloud Platform, which I've been enjoying quite a bit. But I think I think anyone that you're comfortable with would is probably fun. So let's talk about some some kind of good examples of machine learning projects that you're aware of. You don't have to have done uh, done them, but uh, uh, certainly bonus points for anything you've implemented personally. But like, could you could you walk us through a, an example? Uh, well, facial recognition has certainly popped up as being around a lot more often, um, and we can we can do facial recognition in pictures. A number of different ways. One easy one is just to hand code a couple of patterns that uh, a program can look for. For example, if you see 
two dots that are arranged in a particular way, two dark spots that are arranged in a particular way, especially if there is a horizontal line somewhere underneath, we can, uh, and it has a certain spacing, we can assume that that is eyes and a mouth. And that will that will create a pretty accurate facial recognition thing. Although, <clears throat> if you shine that at a, uh, if you point that same uh, software package at a wall socket or, or power outlet, it will probably identify that as a face. So there's other more sophisticated machine learning versions of that. One of them is called a convolutional neural network, which essentially looks at images in, in, in a pretty approximately similar way to the way our eyes look at images and parse information out of it. Instead of looking for large scale patterns like two dots and a slash, which might be two eyes and a mouth, it looks for lots and lots and lots of little tiny patterns. For example, it'll start to uh, independently develop the idea of lines and circles and simple shapes. And as a multi-layer thing, it will start to assemble those lines and shapes into slightly more complex objects and then even more complex objects until it uh, eventually has assembled these things into, uh, for example, facial features, faces, objects. And that's very similar to the way we recognize patterns. We, we don't see we don't see pixels, even though the rods and cones in our eyes essentially interpret information as pixels. We, we see simple lines and shapes. We assemble simple lines and shapes, uh, and then we draw information from that. So does, is machine learning at the, in its current state, so is it capable of adjusting its strategy on its own, or is that where humans come in? It, it can do limited uh, strategy adjustment inside of the task that it's been given. Um, for example, in the, in the example of pattern recognition for recognizing faces and pictures, it might start off trying to learn, look at it might start off trying to look at certain specific tiny shapes that wind up being not very helpful to it, and it will adapt over time to to look for more more relevant shapes in the image, or it might zero in on a part of an image that is more likely to contain a face, and so on. But there's a limit to what a specific machine learning algorithm can adapt to. A machine learning algorithm that has been trained to identify faces is never going to spontaneously learn how to drive a car. It's never going to spontaneously learn how to or adaptively learn how to, to do surgery or talk to you. So they're, they're pretty task specific. What about in the example that you provided where... Uh, you talked about machine learning uh, changing one's strategy so that instead of looking at broader patterns, it, it looked at sm much smaller patterns and then assembled those together. Is machine learning capable of doing that, making that decision to do that on its own? So typically in the case of image recognition, the, the algorithm that's used is a multi-layer thing where the, the, the algorithm first looks at little tiny tiny patterns like lines, circles, very, very simple atomic shapes. And then at the next level of abstraction, it assembles those very small scale shapes into slightly more complex shapes. And then at the next layer of abstraction, it assembles those more complex shapes into even more complex shapes. So it's really doing all those things simultaneously. And it's adapting all of those things simultaneously. Okay, I get it. What about one of the things that I've read about over time, uh, the last little while is, and, and actually noticed personally, is that uh, the Google Translate is something I use on my phone. Uh, I happen to go to Mexico now and then. I don't speak Spanish. You know, so I load up Google Translate on my phone whenever I'm going to go. It even works offline. 
and I remember using translation web pages and programs, you know, over the last 15 years and they were terrible up until the last 18 months, 24 months. What has changed with uh, the, the, the translation services? And I'm not just talking about Google, actually. Uh, I saw a Skype demonstrated at um, a Microsoft conference over the last, I don't know, five years, where it's in real time doing the voice translation. Something has happened there. I'm assuming it's AI, machine learning, data science, something that you guys are doing. What has changed there? Why is it better? Yeah, that's, that's, that's uh, they're using what's called sequence-to-sequence learning or uh, or a variety of sequence-to-sequence learning in all those cases. I've had a chance to, to use some of that. It's pretty fascinating stuff. One thing that's sort of illustrative is to think of think of a naive approach to language translation first. Uh, for example, if you just have a dictionary of that says, here's a word in Spanish, here's a word in English, and then try and use those by just swapping out words in one language for another to come up with a translation uh, strategy, the results are not very good. Uh, it's, it's very limited. So... What this sequence-to-sequence model does, what, what all these things have been doing, is it is a model that's been trained using this, this flashcard-type approach, except the, the flashcard that it's shown is a sentence in a single language, and the answer that it compares to is the same sentence that's already been translated by a human in a different language. And instead of just swapping out word for word or even phrases for phrases, it goes through this fairly complex internal process, which actually is pretty similar to what happens with the facial recognition thing. The facial recognition algorithm looks at simple shapes that it pulls out at fine detail, and then it starts assembling those into more complex shapes. The sequence to sequence learner does the same thing with words. It starts uh, recognizing very small scale patterns in the input language and then starts assembling that into some strange internal representation of more complex shapes, and then eventually outputs that into a, a, the secondary language. What that means is trying to, trying to see the exact logic that goes into Google Translate, translating from English to Spanish, is not really human-readable, but the internal representations that it's coming up with are extremely similar to the 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 processes that are in facial recognition in the sense that it looks at simple things and then it assembles them into more complex things and then more complex things. If I'm, um, you know, if, if I'm working in the enterprise, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm probably a manager type or, you know, maybe I'm a data professional, but not a data scientist. And maybe I'm an organization who doesn't necessarily have a data scientist on staff or even access to one. How do I identify machine learning opportunities? I mean, the, the, the easy answer is just ex- get as much exposure to this stuff as possible so that you start recognizing patterns and the problems that are being solved. But that's probably not a very satisfying answer. I think that really uh, what you should be doing is looking for situations where you have some some question that you can answer. You have some large a batch of, of data. You have some information about what's going on inside of that or or what sort of what some sort of result is that you might glean from the data, but you're not exactly sure what the patterns in the data are that, that lead to that. Or you'd like a more robust method of finding the answer to something like that that doesn't involve hand coding. To, 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 to restate that, if you, have, if you have data, if you have some sort of label that you can attach to the data that's important to you, but you're not exactly sure what patterns go into, into developing that, 
or the patterns that you do have are all coded by hand by humans and could be more robust, then that's a very good candidate for machine learning. As a, another quick example of this, I, we mentioned facial recognition. And if you, were, if you were a medical professional and you looked at CT scans and had to identify certain regions in the scans that may or may not be cancerous, and you have a lot of CT scans already existing, you have little circles on them where you, you say, this one does look cancerous, this one doesn't, you could conceivably feed that to a machine learning algorithm and have something that could look at a CT scan by itself and automatically identify regions that are, uh, that are dangerous or not that would cut down your workload by a lot. Essentially, you're using the same kind of technology that happens for facial recognition, and it, and it doesn't seem like it's the same domain at all as recognizing cancer and CT scans, but just being able to understand the, the, the fundamental principles that go into a machine learning project like that will let you jump from one domain to the other pretty easily. As I listen to you answer that, one of the things that quickly came to mind is, and I'm just drawing on my own experience in IT with development, development and developers and managing everyone around, I'm kind of wondering, like, to kind of keep me honest here, if I am a director or manager of uh, numerous IT people and I'm asking my developers to do, to build something that says like, let's say, you know, I want you to look at all of the emails and letters that come into me and route them in a different way or decide if the people are happy or not. Most of the time, at least in my experience, which is a little bit dated with developers. So if you're a developer, I apologize. No, no offense intended. You know, I can see them saying it's too hard to identify that and route them. It's just too much programming. It's, you know, it would take us years. And by the time we're done, we'd probably be wrong. But I can think as a human, like there's got to be patterns of certain words, like, you know, you could pick up. So I'm thinking like, is it, is it fair to say anytime you know, my development staff says it's too hard and there's too much programming to kind of label and categorize, but you know, there are patterns there. Is that a safe way to say, okay, you know, uh, I should get some, a machine? For the most part, for the most part, yes. What we mean by too hard to program there is coming up with a method uh, of uh, a whole series of if then statements based off of the language that's inside of those emails would take forever. It doesn't work at scale. It would be it would be really painful to do. So that does absolutely make a great candidate for machine learning. The only caveat there is it would be extremely helpful if you had a lot of examples of some sort of a language text and some sort of, a, if you wanted to, to see if people were happy or upset, for example, if you had a lot of examples of language text that already had a rating that showed happiness or, uh, or, or unhappiness attached to those, then you could put those into a machine learning model and train it on that information. So right. again, training information for something like that really should have or, or works much better if you have input data like the stuff that you want and a bunch of known labels on things. So, so that would be the, the really the only stopping point for a project like that. And you could, if you're clever, come up with other types of training data. For example, if you took a bunch of movie reviews that have language text and a form of happiness rating attached to them, you could train a model on that and then transfer that model over to email content. There is a, a little bit of danger in that particular example because the style of writing in movie reviews is not the same as the style of writing in business emails, but you could use that as a starting point, certainly. Right. Yeah. I, I think sentiment analysis is 
super interesting uh, for for just about any type of company that that does any service. Like if you look at the feedback that every bank, airline, rent car rental company, everybody they they get like you know there's t- there's tons of, of of gold in there. You know, finding out that uh, well you know Chris Presley seems kind of annoyed with us and and having a personal banker. Uh, triggering an event where a personal banker that lives near him calls him up and says, Hey, how are you doing? Just wondered if there's anything we can do for you today. You know, like the opportunity to, for customer retention is, is amazing or routing the customer, uh, the disgruntled. If you have a Sally in client relations, who's better with disgruntled uh, customers than Jim uh, and routing the disgruntled customers, you know, to Sally or better yet, you want to keep your employees, so not sending all the disgruntled uh, customers to Sally and spreading the load. You know, there's just so much opportunity there. It's a little creepy, but it's it's awesome. And can you imagine trying to hand code something like that? You could, for example, come up with a rule that says anytime the word great appears, let's count that as a, a, a plus one positivity point. But then you think, well, what if the phrase not great appears and you have to hand code? Well, not great is a, a negative statement. But then you realize maybe not that great shows up and there's a three word statement that implies negativity. And then you realize you have to come up with every single possible three phrase one that might imply negativity. And the the amount of work that you have to do scales really, really fast. Oh, yeah. And and then uh, and then add in our texting culture where it's, you know, great becomes GR number eight. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. OK. Uh, that's. Yeah, it's super cool. I, I love how this is. Uh, I love what this is going to do for me as a consumer and a customer. I, I think it's fascinating. I think. Go ahead. One, one thing I should point out about I, I've given I've gone back to the example of facial recognition or object recognition a number of times here, and one of the reasons I like that as an example of what machine learning can do is because it's intuitive, and and we as humans do visual recognition all the time. We've done it since we were born. We have built-in physiology that, that is adapted to that and it's part of our everyday life. The downside to using an example like that when we're discussing machine learning is that it's so intuitive for us that we don't really spend any amount of time thinking about the mechanics of how we do it. It's it's We do it on autopilot, right? So, so it's an easy approach, an easy example to approach but really, if we want to turn that into insight about how machine learning works, we really need to sort of tear down all of our assumptions or pull apart all of our assumptions for how that process works and say, what really is going down in a fine-grained level here? And then how can that, how can that same kind of analysis be done on other situations that we as humans uh, aren't intuitive about? We, we're very used to saying, oh, I can see how uh, a bunch of lines and, and curves can turn into a face or a desk or something like that. But we're not really very practiced, at, for example, at recognizing what the equivalent small, medium, and large patterns and meta patterns are in log files that come out of a, of a website. Fundamentally, they're very similar to each other. It's just lots of information where we pull out patterns and then meta patterns. But one's something that we as humans do automatically and one's something that we don't do automatically. Right. So let, let me and, and and as a data professional, the most interesting findings are always in the outliers. So, so going on that, I mean, there's, there's some fairly famous kind of things over history where we built a thing for something and we intended it to, but it, it it didn't work out very well for that, and it had a great effect on something we didn't intend at all. 
Uh, and you talked about, you know, analyzing movie sentiments and then, then using it for business emails. Are there any famous or non-famous cases where a model was created with the intention of doing a thing and then it worked out really well for something completely unexpected? Is there anything you're aware of there to share? I think the, the, the using visual representation stuff in other settings is sort of a big one. There's really a whole, there's a whole category of, of machine learning tricks called transfer learning, where you train a model on one kind of information and then shift it over, shift that trained model over to a slightly different type of information and then train it a bit more so that it's had some practice to become smarter on a, on a related task. That's a whole, a whole category of thing, which is a really powerful technique. Uh, for example, if you were just looking at visual recognition, you could find online a pre-trained deep neural network model that's been trained to recognize thousands of different objects that they have them publicly available. And what you can do is take that pre-trained model, which has already learned to recognize simple shapes and slightly more complex shapes, and then train it further on something that's extremely specific to your particular task. And it will greatly benefit from having done all this, uh, the, the basic training on, uh, on all this previous stuff. So that's certainly, okay. certainly one. Aside from that, just being able to recognize what's, what's happening when a certain technique is being used can let you use techniques in odd settings in kind of interesting ways. For example, you can, um, you can use visual recognition techniques on things that are not visually based, assuming that certain conditions are met. Um, you can use them to recognize sounds. You can, uh, there's a number of different kind of interesting things. You can use language techniques on non-language tasks, for example, in sort of interesting ways. Although the details of how to do that are a, a little technical, but it can be done. Absolutely. Okay. Hmm. Okay, cool. Well, let's shift gears and help our audience get started with uh, some of their own machine learning projects. Now, you have a PhD do I need a PhD to get started with machine learning? You don't. I think that having some some level of, of technical training is definitely a good thing. And being comfortable with statistics is probably a really good idea. Um, but there's a lot of resources out there to to help you get started. And typically what people are interested in more, I, uh, in my experience, is, is more data science than machine learning, which is that larger practice as I mentioned. But again, data science is a slightly overloaded word and means a lot of different things. So depending on what exactly you're wanting to learn or want to do, then the, the level of technical expertise that you need in your background varies. If you want to build a novel algorithm that can do some combination of fancy tricks to do something that hasn't been done before, you, the level of technical expertise that you need is probably higher than if you want to to do something uh, a little more simple that that has been done before, but there's so much out there now that there's a lot of resources that you can you can get started on with um, with basic programming abilities and some basic statistics knowledge. And, and it's funny you you've mentioned statistics a few times, and just to audience just to relate my own experience, uh, a few years ago I did take a data scientist a course on how to be a data scientist, and the intention was really for it was a week course, and the intention was. Uh, for really people who wanted to taste of it and uh, who who wanted to manage really data scientists and understand what they're up to. And um, in my case, with a strong technical background, I lacked the statistical background. So while I was able to pick up the uh, 
the languages and understand the how. Picking what to do with the data was very difficult without the the, uh, the uh, statistic knowledge. Um, so I think it's really important to get the statistical knowledge. I agree with everything that Paul said. Um, you know, I wasn't nearly as effective uh, as effective as I wanted to be. And one of the things that winds up being important is really just how can you very clearly articulate to yourself what are my assumptions when I'm building the uh, when I'm drawing out the diagram for the problem when I'm putting together a data set when I'm assembling all this stuff because that can that can lead you into to false conclusions where it's not exactly clear what went wrong and, and so on. Okay, so the other thing that we'll do is uh, we'll include in the show notes a couple of links to some uh, blogs and sources for models that uh, that that uh, you guys can take a look at. It'll be in the show notes, which are hosted at Pythian.com. Uh, just uh, go to the, the podcast is on the main page, and uh, you can you can, or or and also in the blog, so you can pick those links up there. But we'll provide a few a uh, few things over there. There's no no point in articulating them verb- verbally. So, Paul, I, I've really enjoyed our conversation today. I, at this point, we we move into what we call the lightning round, and that's where I ask you a series of questions that uh, you answer as quickly as you can. Uh, first thing that comes to mind, and it helps us get to know you just a little bit better. Are you in? I'm in. All right. What project are you most proud of? Uh, there's a project that I worked on that involved uh, it was audio recognition, recognizing what language is being spoken. And through some slightly interesting trickery, we ended up using a visual recognition model on that uh, in, a, in a pretty cool way. And I, I really love the way that turned out. Uh, that, that sounds pretty cool. And the subject of, it, of, a, of a podcast on its own, I'm sure. Can you name a book that's made the most impact on your career? Yeah, there's a, a book by uh, Trevor Hasty called The Elements of Statistical Learning by Springer, which is fairly dense, but, but full of some amazing stuff. And that, that made a pretty big impact on me. Okay, great. Standing or sitting desk? You know, I've used, I've used both. I'm currently using a sitting desk, but I, I, I sort of like doing both. As soon as they invent a, a pacing around desk, I will be all over that. <laughs> All right. Laptop or desktop? Laptop all the way. Okay. And is that laptop a Mac or a PC? It's Linux, uh, Ubuntu. Okay. Ubuntu. All right. So are you an iPhone or an Android person or Windows phone, perhaps? Android. Absolutely Android. All right. And what is the best tool or app that you use on a daily basis? I, th- I think really the ability to stand up and take the walk around the block for five minutes is probably my most consistently used and most helpful tool in my arsenal. Everything else sort of comes and goes. Okay, understood. Uh, diffusive learning is a is a good thing for sure. And Paul, if people want to know more about you, read what you've written, get in contact with you, where can they find you? Uh, you can find me on, on LinkedIn under Paul Spiegelhalter. You can also email me directly at spiegelhalter at pythian.com. Okay, and folks, those will uh, those links will also be in the show notes. No need to remember them. Well, that's all the time we had for today. Would you like us to go further into machine learning, uh, data science, or AI? Let me know by emailing me at datascapepodcast at gmail.com. And just a little teaser, Paul and I are already planning an episode of consisting of machine learning myths, what it is and what it is not. And as always, the biggest compliment you can give us is by helping others find us. And you can do that by writing us a review on iTunes or just telling a friend about it, the podcast. Uh, Have a great day in the datascape. Navigating the datascape.